I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. Good day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions, obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing a relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered or addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoyed the whole program and welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. In this edition, we get to interview Dr. U.S. Kaplash, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon who specialises both in breast cancer and skin cancers alike. He's got a specialist appointment at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and champions a multidisciplinary approach to the management of head and neck cancers, skin cancers and breast cancers alike. He's going to give us his approach to assessment of skin cancers and themselves. Not only will this information be useful for the general practitioner seeing a patient on a regular basis, but also for the medical student revising for their exams or preparing for their OSCE examination. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide in South Australia, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been produced, and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. Today on Aussie Med Ed, we've got Dr. Yugesh Kaplash, who's going to talk to us about skin cancers. He's a specialist plastic surgeon at the Royal Aid Hospital and also in private practice in various sites, including Glenelg. Welcome, Dr. Yugesh Kaplash. Uh, good day, Gavin. Nice to meet, uh, talk to you about skin cancers. Um, it's a great uh, problem in Australia because, as you know, Australia is the cancer capital of the world as far as skin cancers are concerned. And uh, there are very high rates of non-melanoma skin cancers as well as uh, melanoma rates in Australia. And uh, it's mainly because of the effect of the UV rays as there's a UV hole over Australia or there's uh, increased production of the UVB rays, which does lead to changes in the skin and is one of the greatest uh, causes for skin cancer in Australia. The actual effect of the UV rays, is it a chronic effect? Is it actually a cumulative or is it actually secondary to multiple episodes of burning? I mean, what's the most important thing to avoid? If you can actually probably call it as multiple episodes of burning because that it actually causes DNA damage uh, because of the shortwave UV, UVB ray. And uh, situations like as young individuals, they've had uh, multiple episodes of skin burn, erythema, redness. And so that leads to the damage in the skin and which shows up in later years in life as skin cancers or actinic damage. And does the genetics have a part to play in protective? I know different children might say they've got an olive complexion that protects them. Is that actually a factor? It is true that people with uh, pigmented skin have a higher Fitzpatrick uh, grading, do get a less number of skin cancers. But they do get. It's not that you're completely eliminated. You still get skin cancers. What's been the protective effect of the sun protective cream we've had for the last 20 or 30 years, the, the high 15 plus and then 30 plus and now it's 50 plus? Has that seen a reduction in the risk of skin cancers? Yes, it is very important for us to be using uh, sun protection. But the main thing which people do not realize is the, the SPF doesn't mean that you are completely protected for a long time. It is a question of just the higher protection that you have. But the effect of the sunscreen goes away uh, after some, sometimes it's two hours or sometimes it's three hours, but 
essentially it needs to be reapplied in order to get the full protection. And it has been very helpful in the reduction of skin cancers. Also, more and more people are aware of the harmful effects of sun, and so they have been careful about sun exposure. The other thing which has been really important is the tanning saloons or the solariums which have been closed, which have been banned in Australia, which has made a difference. Are the different types of skin cancers, I believe there's SECs, BCCs, melanomas, and other ones I've not even heard of before, um, are they all related to sun or some more related to sun than others? Some more related to the sun. The non-melanoma skin cancers, that is the uh, basal cell cancer and the squamous cell cancer, were the most common type. BCC is the most common type of skin cancer, followed by squamous cell. And lately, we've been seeing a different type of uh, neuroendocrine cancer, which is the Merkel cell tumor, which has shown a higher prevalence. And again, it is related to the effect of sun. What other factors are there in the actual causation, apart from sun exposure? Are there genetic elements as well? Yes, there is. If you look at that, the UV exposure obviously is number one. The lighter skin color, you know, people with Fitzpatrick uh, 1, 2 to 3, which have a very light skin color, obviously do not have that much melanin in their skin, so their protection is less. So their skin burns easily. People with light blue-green eyes, people with red hair, uh, or people who have multiple nevi or have a family history of skin cancer. Also, it's good to note that uh, people who've had previous skin cancer are more likely to develop skin cancer because obviously there's been an effect on their skin. I believe there's a dysplastic nevus syndrome as well as part of that. Is that is that an extreme element of the multiple nevi scenario? Is that a particular type of variant? Yes, dysplastic syndrome is uh, well known. It's a genetic syndrome and the chances of melanoma are very high. And they have to be on, they're mostly advised not to expose themselves to the sun, but also uh, they have to have regular checkups because it's not only just exposure to the sun, the rays are reflected while even if they're working close to a window, they're on the sea or whatever, so they do get that effect. And as we are well aware that we have a very high incidence of melanoma in our country, so it's very important to be seen regularly and checked. So your approach to seeing a lesion on the skin, uh, how would you actually go to assess it? For a medical student or a GP assessing a skin cancerous lesion or a lesion that they're concerned about it being a skin cancer, what's the general approach that the, the medical student should take? So the first thing you've got to remember is that the patients are generally quite aware of changes in their skin. So they will be able to tell you or point to the fact that some la- something which has come up is not the same, number one, or they've had episodes of crusting on top of that, or a bleeding, so they found that found a spot of blood on their pillow. And so these are some of the important factors which sort of lead you to have a look. And when you are seeing a patient, it's very important to assess the lesion in good natural light, if possible. And if you do have a reasonable magnification, like you can get these magnifiers which have got light inside that, and so you can actually get a better idea of the lesion that you are seeing. One very important factor with a BCC when you're examining a BCC, I will go into the different types which are there, but the important thing about any BCC is that you can actually, when you try to pull the skin and blanch, so the lesion that you will see in a BCC would be a sort of pearly uh, lesion, and there will be like fine blood vessels inside that, which we call as cylindic And if you actually pull the skin 
uh, try and blanch them, you could actually see the margin as a clearly clear, pearly margin, and that's diagnostic of BCC. The other thing which is important that is that if you're looking at pigmented lesions, the important thing is that to always remember the A, B, C, D, E. The A is asymmetrical looking lesion, which has a border which is irregular and rough. The color may, be, may have changed, may have become darker, may have become lighter. The diameter would be bigger than some of the other areas there. It's like the ugly duckling, which sort of looks different than the rest of the nevi. And it has been evolving or changing in its character. So those are some of the things that you have to keep in mind when you are examining a lesion. What about the actual systemic examination? And once you've seen the lesion, do you need to look at um, lymph nodes, um, assess other areas of the body as well as part of the assessment? Yeah, it's very important that once you see a lesion, you must go to the rest of the areas to look for other lesions which may be present, uh, which are similar. You know, now, you've got to remember that uh, the chance of a BCC metastasizing to any part of the body is extremely low. The rate is something like less than 5%, so a very uh, low chance of it metastasizing to the lymph nodes. Even the squamous cell cancers in the skin have a very low rate of metastasis. And if you look at an average, although uh, because we've got so much of these, they're not reported that uh, often, but Cutaneous SCC has about 3 to 5% chance of spreading to the lymph nodes. I would just like to also point out that uh, if a person has had multiple skin cancers, especially skin uh, SCCs of the head and neck area, it's very important to look at the, uh, the parotid and also to look at the lymph nodes in the neck because it does have a higher chance of developing a metastatic lymph node in the parotid. And we are all very well aware of the fact that it is one of the commonest malignancies in the parotid gland to have a metastatic SCC uh, to the parotid. That's spread from the lip or from the, from the face itself? Usually uh, from the scalp or from the periorbital area or from the cheek, preauricular area. That is where you will see that. The lip SCC is a little bit different compared to cutaneous SCC. Now, uh, they are more mucosal or, the, uh, or oral SCC. So they behave more aggressively and they go to the lymph nodes very quickly. They have 20% chance that you can get uh, metastatic lymph nodes when you have an SCC of the lip. So you must always examine the uh, draining basin. And that's usually in the submental area or the level one to two, uh, level two nodes. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs, and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. So if we go through the basic cancers in themselves, the BCCs themselves are relate to just a hyperplasia of the skin versus SEC to chronic irritation, is it? So the melanoma is secondary to melanin production? BCCs basically are different types. And so what you see in an SCC is the change in the keratin or the epidermal layers of the skin. The BCC is more from the basal layer. And so 
they are around the hair follicle, basal cells around the hair follicle. That's where the BCCs develop from. STCs are more epidermal related. So how does melanoma fit into all of this? Uh, melanoma is basically related to the mel- uh, melanin in the melanin cells in the skin. So they irritated and start producing rapid mitotic figures. And the important thing to remember in a melanoma is there are two types of growth phases in a melanoma. One is the horizontal growth phase and then the vertical growth phase. As long as it's a horizontal growth phase, they are less aggressive because they are not going into the subdermal lymphatic that quickly. But when it comes to the vertical growth phase, that's when the problem happens. And that's why you have when the histologically they're the they're examined, they are basically the thickness is measured from the granular layer down to the depth of the melanoma. So that gives you the thickness. That's the vertical growth, which is really important for further management of the melanoma. So the early stage is the insight you one. So the insight to or the lentigo malignant is a very early type. And uh, the chances of that developing into an invasive melanoma are low, but it's important that they still get rid of them as soon as possible so that the chances of developing a melanoma are reduced. Okay, so that's why the thickness of the lesion is important. Do they still use the Breslow technique of measuring the thickness of the melanoma? There are two types, which is, one was the Clark level, uh, Clark types, and now it is a more refined form, that's the Breslow thickness, which is measured under the microscope, which I was mentioning earlier, that you measure the thickness of the tumour from the granular layer down to the depth of the tumour. And these thickness measurements aren't used for SECs and BCCs, just used for melanomas, is that correct? Yeah, so that's mainly in melanoma. We are talking about the thickness of the SEC is more so when you're looking at mucosal tumours, mucosal SECs, like of the lip or the oral tongue or buccal mucosa, that's where the thickness does play an important role in SEC. Now, I understand also SEC can relate to chronic discharging sinuses, such as an osteomyelitis, where we might see it in the orthopedic scenario, as well as people with chronic renal disease. Are these common situations or are these quite rare scenarios? Now, Margillin's ulcer, which you're talking about, is basically, it's a long-standing chronic ulcer with uh, irritation, and occasionally that can transform into an SEC, can be quite aggressive, and that is not a uh, common thing to occur. Now, I'm aware that cryotherapy is often used to freeze skin of sun-damaged skin or actinic-damaged skin, uh, as well as using creams such as Epidex. What's their role and when is it used? So the important thing to see is that actinic keratosis, which, again, is a long-term DNA damage of the skin because of exposure to the sun, they can predispose to SCC. It's not a very high rate. I mean, say if you are looking at a person who's got more than 10 actinic keratosis, then their chances of developing into an SCC are about 10 to 15%. So not every actinic keratosis is going to develop into an SCC. And majority of the actinic keratosis respond very well to cryotherapy. That leads to cleaning up the skin because essentially you're freeze-drying the cells and they will ultimately they'll form a crust and die and fall off. And there are other things which can be used. The other one is a cyclophenic gel, which is more like produces an anti-inflammatory response in the skin. And that so basically the keratosis can be hypertrophic or lichenoid. It's just the uh, extensive response of the skin. And that responds well to these anti-inflammatory gel. And that is usually applied twice a day. And that can help keep them at bay. 
5-FU or Epidex is a cytotoxic treatment, which basically, again, kills the cells, leads to an intense skin reaction in that area. You would have seen a number of people, they, they form the painful ulcers, which is basically the intense cytotoxic nature of the drug and which causes it to clean up. The treatment basically is to be applied for about four weeks, and that's important. The other one which is also useful is imicomoid cream, which is an immune modulator which is, produces a local immune modulation, and that helps more so in BCC, but is also helpful in SCC. Now, I think we've described the f- features of a melanoma to watch out for and also BCC. I, I think we've skipped over SCC. What are the main appearances of SCC? You see a keratinizing nodule, which may or may not be ulcerated. It looks sort of ugly, and if you try and feel around it, you sort of feel a nodule or, or sort of, mild indurated area around that circle of that nodule. And that's sort of very suspicious for an SCC. Which I'd like to mention is a keratoacanthoma, which is something which you sometimes see in these cases where you've done cryotherapy and then it just produces a great uh, sort of response and you see the subnormal proliferation or it's like an onion uh, sort of thing, which uh, crust which forms up in that area. looks quite ugly. And... Uh, over a period of time, that thing will actually fall off and the area will heal with some deformity in that area. Uh, but often, these keratoacanthomas may have a well-differentiated SCC at their base. So that's the reason we excise keratoacanthomas. And talking about excision of these lesions, what size margins do you tend to choose for the different types of malignancies such as BCC and SCC and melanomas? So uh, let's go from top down. So if you're looking at BCCs and SCCs, on an average, you require a margin of about three to four millimeters. If you're looking at the head and neck area, a BCC, if it's papillonodular type, which is like a, a firm nodule with chilling dectasia, the chances of it having microscopic penetration laterally are much less. So if you are in a sensitive area, you could compromise by doing a two millimeter margin but on average, for a medical student, the excision margin for a BCC or an SCC is three to four millimeters. You should excise with that margin. And what about melanoma? So if you go to melanoma, now then that becomes a different thing altogether because first of all, you need to diagnose the melanoma. Now, diagnostic melanoma is basically we encourage excisional biopsies. We do not uh, prefer uh, punch biopsies. The reason being that you may not if you do a punch biopsy, it may not be from the most representative area, so you may not get the full depth of the lesion, That's which is also needed to work out what the margin should be. So that is one. Second thing is that depending on the depth, we have to look at a different type of management for melanoma, which may be wide local excision with a sentinel node biopsy. So depending on what the depth is, then you make a decision of what your margin should be like. It can vary between one to two centimeter margin for a melanoma. And you may need to do sentinel lymph node biopsy, which is actually putting a dye in to first check where the lymph nodes are and then putting in blue dilator along with the gamma camera and finding out which is the most draining lymph node. And you take that out as prognosticator for basically for melanoma. So what size thickness would you be thinking about doing that ladder? The sentinel node biopsy in a melanoma is between 1 to 4 millimeters and above. So that's the breast low thickness you're looking at. 
Or if it is less than a millimeter with ulceration, then you would look at doing a tent node biopsy. Now, once you've got the diagnosis of the melanoma, the Breslau thickness, and you've also done your sentinel biopsies, what's the main treatment after that? Immunotherapy has made great progress, uh, or the immune-modulated drugs have made a great progress in the treatment of melanoma. The primary lesion is still taken by taken out by excision, and then we are looking at treating the lymph nodes by supportive management. It may because the role of say even if your sentinel node biopsy come positive, you sort of have to look at what is the amount of metastatic material inside a lymph node. And if you do need to, then you can have adjuvant therapy. The role of lymphadenectomy has reduced considerably. In fact, if there is no palpable node, then the chance of doing a clearance is low. So we don't do any clearance, even if a sent node from positive. But the addition of the immune-modulating drugs, we've been able to get good results with melanoma. And even if you have systemic metastasis, then adding on the immunotherapy makes a lot of difference to them. And people have had good results with those. Now, I understand you're a campaigner for a multidisciplinary approach to assessing of skin cancers. In an ideal situation, such as a large hospital, what would be your ideal setup? At the Royal Adelaide, we have combined the melanoma clinic into with three people who do look after melanomas. We have the general surgeons, we have dermatologists and plastic surgeons all in one area to clinically see the patients in case anybody's help is required, that can be done. People come to surveillance for dermatology also. It's interrelated. We also have MDT meeting, which is happens every two weeks, uh, where we have the three departments along with oncology, radiotherapy, to discuss the management plans for any patients. Well, that's excellent. Obviously, these techniques must improve the prognosis for patients presenting with skin cancers. And obviously, the incidence must be reducing with the use of these skin cancer preventative techniques such as reducing sun exposure and use of sun cream. Absolutely. The crux of the situation is pick it early. And it's really important that we take all the precautionary measures to let to prevent it from happening. That's number one. And we pick it early. So just by an example, how many times do you look at yourself at the back? You're not able to see it properly. But if your partner is guided and knows exactly what you see, they can even take pictures. iPhones are great. They take pictures. And if they find any change, they're very quick to pick it up. And that has actually increased the rate of early pickup for melanoma. And that is very good. And thus, with the addition of good immunotherapies, we are able to now check the genetic uh, type of melanoma, uh, the mutations that are happening. And uh, with the immunotherapy, we are able to modulate their behavior to a great extent. And it has shown a lot of survival. The survival rates have increased considerably with all these treatment modalities. Well, to finish off, let's just talk about Merkel cell cancers. I haven't heard about these before, but I believe it's a new type of lesion that's being seen more commonly. Could you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, it's a neuroendocrine type of tumour which shows up on the skin as a distinct pink nodule, which it can be picked up very easily. And it's very important that the earlier you pick it up, the better it is. And because it's an aggressive type of tumor and can spread to the lymph nodes very quickly, sometimes you will even see a patient, especially in the head neck area, who has Merkel cell tumor and also has already has metastatic disease. But the good part about that is that it is very sensitive to radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So essentially, you're looking at um, early systemic treatment for them. 
And is merkel cell treatment related to sun exposure as well, or is it more genetic? Again, related to sun exposure. There are different causes we're still sort of looking at. I mean, it, it's seeing more and more merkel cells, and we're looking at uh, what are the options. We're really not clear about that at this point. This is brilliant. It's been great to have you on today and go through the types of skin cancers and actually cementing the ideas of what it's all about. Uh, hopefully the medical students will find it excellent and also support the GPs listening to the podcast. So, look, thank you very much, guest, for coming on the on the program. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I think it's fantastic. Uh, and we're always there to answer any problems, questions, whenever they would like to. I'm happy to respond to emails. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, guest. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as one one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed, or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. We really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at med-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.